Hi everyone, and welcome to the Productize Podcast. This is a podcast where innovators, product creators, and entrepreneurs come to discuss impactful ideas. Our mission is to inspire more people to create great product experiences. My name is Margarida, and I'll be your host today. My guest today is Dominic Yost, head of product at Twist. Dominic has experience of a decade and a half working as CPO, director of product, team leader, and head of many departments. He describes himself as a creative, resilient, and pragmatic product leader who has no problem in saying, I'm sorry, I don't know, and can you help me? Hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome, Dominic. Uh, I'm very happy to have you here in the podcast, uh, and I'm really excited for our conversation. Yeah, super excited to be here as well. So thanks for inviting me. Great. So let's start by the beginning. So can you please describe us? How were you as a kid? Uh, what did you like to do? What were your interests? Oh, wow. We're, we're going way back. Um, <laughs> so yeah, as a, as a kid growing up, I, I was always interested in comics, movies, um, anything like that. And one of my cousins actually um, got himself a computer, like back then, that was a huge thing. And I spent some time at his place and he introduced me to his Amiga 2000 back then and um, showed me all the cool things that you could do with uh, with this computer. And then I was, I was hooked. Um, until that point though, I used to play like video games, like most kids, but just like, seeing the computer as a tool and as a way to create things was was fairly new to me and um yeah things change from from that point on going yes so then you you went to study uh, electrical engineering and, and then computer science so i mentioned due to this uh, previous interest in computers Yes, definitely. Um, actually, electronics, electronical engineering was not at the top of my list, to be very honest. Um, it was something that happened out of necessity because um, when, I, when I was growing up, there weren't that many um, possibilities to like, extend your studies in computer science. So you know, electronics, electrical engineering was sort of the next best thing. Um, so I took a little detour before then going back into computer science. Right, right. Okay, exactly. So and then uh, you started your career um, as a software development uh, and then moved to product. So can you please describe us uh, how, uh, how was your career until you arrived to product management? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So I think my, the beginnings were pretty, I'd say like pretty normal for like a lot of people. You study something and then you look for a job in the field that you studied. So it felt very natural to start as a software engineer, um, but it became pretty clear pretty quickly that that wasn't actually what I was really interested in. So, and, and also, to be honest, like there were a lot better engineers in the teams that I worked in than myself. Um, so that pretty much showed me that. Um, so this combination of being not the best engineer, but then also being interested in other parts other than creating the software itself, 
um, was the reason why I then started looking around to like other parts of the team that created the, the software except engineering. And um, yeah, I worked with a product manager back then, which was actually, it was more of a project manager, but we called them pro product manager. <laughs> and um, yeah, I just started showing interest in, you know, understanding why we're actually building things, um, who are the users that will be um, you know, using our features. So those questions became more and more interesting to me. So that's when I realized that, oh, there's this other thing beyond software engineering that might also be, um, yeah, that might be appealing uh, for me. So that's how I like slowly transitioned away from engineering into product. Um, but it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't until the, the very first iPhone was launched, like a long, long time ago, and the App Store was also launched, and the first, first native applications became a, a thing. That's where I sort of shifted into more figuring out how to build products rather than actually coding um, software myself. So that was a gradual transition from engineering to leading engineering teams to um, heading an engineering department to just flipping over to product management in an instant and doing the whole thing again but from the other side okay so you you kind of had a soft transitioning uh, until you arrived to product management uh, which is uh, something that you still do today so it is your uh, what you're meant to do <laughs> or what you like to do oh yeah definitely um i definitely enjoy working in product um and i would say that my background in software engineering has has helped me just to understand you know, things like how complex uh things are or also just to like simple things like just taking engineers seriously you know when they come up with um or when they approach you with uh, concerns um, because having been in those shoes myself um, just yeah helps yeah, I think helped me build up a lot of empathy and it is pretty hard like software engineering is, is pretty it's pretty hard and it's amazing at the same time if you enjoy doing it but yeah much respect for um, all the software engineers out there that are trying to make things happen yes Yes, I um, me myself. I also think like I've never worked as a software engineer, but uh, having the background in engineering kind of allows you to understand at least the surface of what's being discussed uh, and uh, how difficult it is, more or less, of course. Um, so you can bet, bet, make better decisions uh, when it comes to actually building uh, the products and rely on the tech lead to lead you on things that you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And I always say that there's no such thing as a, as a ex or former engineer because <laughs> you either are a software engineer or you're not, right? And I remember like in the beginning of that transition, it would always be something that I would hold on to um, although, you know, I wasn't an engineer anymore, but I still had that mindset. So if, if, um, if say, the software developer in a team would come up with, with an issue, 
I would like immediately put back on my software engineering hat and, you know, challenge all the details. And yeah, it was just something that, you know, I had to unlearn and just relinquish control um, completely. Exactly, because you worked before more on the solution part, on more on the doings, and then you pass more to the strategic and uh, need to have a, a wider view on what you're doing and consequently less uh, detailed in each topic. So you need to unlearn, as you said. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so... Um, uh, you then uh, you worked for several years, I think sixteen in Scout twenty four. Uh, yeah, exactly. So you you became CPO uh, of uh, this company, um, and uh, you share uh, on your social media that you you had the burnout while you were uh, on this uh, position. And I would like if we could uh, dig in a bit more uh, on this topic. So can you please uh, describe us what led you to burnout and what were the warning signs that you can now look back and identify as the signals that you should have been aware uh, before? Yeah. Um, so what led to the burnout? Um, I think it was a... It was a summary of a lot of things, right? It wasn't just one particular thing. Um, but like looking back, there's there's certainly an element of <clears throat> just having a lot of work. So just the volume of work and dealing with um, just loads of different things across a lot lots of different topics, from product related to you know human beings related, which are by far the toughest um, <laughs> uh, issues to deal with. Um, so the volume of the work, um, and then also like the, I would say the, the clash between what was expected of me in that role and sort of my interests, my values, and the things that I was you know, capable and willing to give. Um, and at the time, I think it wasn't that clear to me, but you know, with, with a bit of distance between what happened then and now, it just, you know, the, the overlap, like the, the job and myself, like it didn't, it didn't match anymore, right? So um, I had to, or I was fulfilling my duty in certain areas that, you know, wasn't, yeah, like didn't match with, with my, yeah, with my values, I think that that's that's like the the easiest way to to put it. You had these uh, misalignment values, uh, and uh, so that meant like um, you are not aligned what with the product that you were delivering, or more uh, on the management side and the way of working. Well, it's more of a way of working and, um, you know, just, just dealing, I would say dealing with everything besides the product. I think like dealing with the product is, is, uh, is challenging regardless, but it was all the other aspects that led me um, into this, this spiral. And yeah, as I mentioned before, there, there were, two things, volume of work, then the values, and then the third one um, was certainly that 
I as a person, I'm someone who is, you know, who is very quickly to, to please others. So I'm, I'm not somebody who is like, I don't thrive in conflict. You know, it's not, yeah, I don't go, oh no, who am I going to, you know, who can I fight with today? So that's, that's not me. Um, but, you know, as, as someone who leads and who manages people, conflicts happen. It's like part of the job and you need to deal with it. Right? And um, I think that was like a third dimension that I was, I was dealing with lots of different things that were very, um, that are like high conflict potential. And I either didn't have the tools or I was just always sort of battling with myself, you know, that, oh, you know, here I am again, somebody who doesn't like conflict in a situation that, you know, requires um, me sort of to act against my, my own you know, nature or my own being. So um, I think those, those were the things that sort of led me into that entire uh, burnout of, you know, like questioning who am I, questioning um, whether I'm still good enough for the job because I wasn't, you, you asked me also about like signals, you know, um, I think one of the first things is definitely um, that you just don't get a lot of work done as you used to, right? So, so the output, the sheer output drops. Um, then there's also, you know, all like physical and emotional reactions that you have from back pains to headaches to just always being, um, you know, like you're distancing yourself from friends and family. You're always mm -hmm. short with others. Um, you're irritated the whole time. So all these different things were signals that, that were there, but you know, I didn't, I didn't read them. And um, yes. yeah, that sort of led to, to the others. Yes. Um, you also, you referred that you are a people pleaser. So it, it seems to me that you might have some, back then you might have had some problems uh establishing boundaries um so well that might also be something that you you learned uh the tough way right oh yeah definitely and and i'm still learning right like some of these things you can't just you know, switch off it's like who you are as a person and um i think for me it's you know it, it has been a journey ever since and it's just like knowing, knowing who you are, knowing in what situations your values and your way of working are actually going to hinder you or help you. So, you know, figuring out when to rely on those, those um, characteristics that you have and when you sort of need to maybe, you know, take, like, employ or implement a few techniques to help you manage those situations. So I would say like knowing, knowing yourself, I think would be like one of my biggest takeaways because if you do not know who you are, what your values are, you know, what, like the boring strengths and weaknesses thing, you know, that everybody needs to answer in job interviews. I think those are very, very important um, things that you need to know about yourself so that you know how to navigate situations and, um, and can go in like prepared, right? And not be surprised that, oh, uh, it's like the third day in a row and I'm dealing with conflict. I wonder why I'm, you know, so down and I've got headaches, et cetera. So all of these things, I think, uh, are just very, very important to know about yourself. Yes, yes. But also uh, knowing who you are, it's um, it's a lifetime journey. You'll never find out the, like, 
the complete answer. So, well, that, that's something that uh, I also need to remember myself that uh, this is the journey of a lifetime. <laughs> Um, we also referred uh, back then that you you start feeling that you are not you were not good enough for the job, and I wanted to touch on that point um, because you you realized that somehow that you had were going through a really bad experience on your work, and then I mentioned you realized you had the burnout. Uh, so how have you dealt with uh, realizing uh, those things and how have you deal with the this conflict of uh, thinking that you're not good enough and maybe feeling that you are weak and you don't have to do what it takes to do the job mm. which I think is still a like society uh, ideas on burnout and being exhausted. Yeah. Um, so the first part of the question is, is that related to uh, like back then or like right now? Uh, back then, like how, how did you realize that you had the problem? So I imagine that you 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 knew you were not okay, but then it took you some time to uh, name the problem oh right right yeah so i mean I, I realized that something was not okay um when i had to go to the to the doctor because you know i had um yeah like physical pains and physical issues um that i hadn't had before so you know went to the doctor uh, explain my situation and then uh, my doctor put me on sick leave for two weeks so that was like the first indication that okay you know something is sort of going on and then um, during those two weeks you know I had some time to reflect and to think about all the you know, all what uh, had happened until then and it wasn't until the end of the second week where I like emotionally also broke down and really you know noticed that something is it's just not right right um so there, there was a lot of crying involved there was a lot of you know self-doubt involved um and all of that then led me to to be put on sick leave for two months so after the end of two weeks you know went back to the to the doctor for a checkup i had like my my emotional breakdown and then i was put on two months um sick leave right so the second period of sick leave was, yeah, that was like the big signal that I need to change things and analyze things. And it's no more just, you know, like a, a small thing to deal with. It's, yeah, there, there's like something wrong, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, that led me through, um, through uh, therapy and, you know, all sorts of like introspective um, uh, exercises. And that's along, like along that path of being in therapy. Um, that's where all these questions started to come up. You know, in terms of, yeah, what are my values? Um, what are sort of the boundaries? Uh, and then what you said, right? Like not being able to set boundaries, saying yes to everything. Those are like very, very um, easy things that bubble to the top during therapy <laughs> very, very quickly. Um, and then obviously also this, this. Um, 
you know, not knowing whether I'll be able to come back at full capacity and, um, yeah, just also wondering whether I'll, whether it's me or it's a job or, you know, what exactly caused this. So in the, in the end, it was a bit of everything. But yeah, this whole thing of being not strong enough, it's a real, I think it's a real issue because um, like nobody is always strong. It just doesn't exist. <laughs> but I think some people are very good at masking it and in certain uh, situations or a certain context is just seen as weak if you say that, you know, if you say no or you say, um, you can't deal with this right now because you've got too much or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, so, yeah, I, I fully understand if people struggle to be open like that and then rather, you know, it's almost like you rather choose to burn out than to stand up for yourself and say, no, right? I'm not going to do this, right? And, and then you add on top of that, you know, if, if you're someone like me who doesn't enjoy conflict, then what's, a, what's the easier solution? To say yes and then just suffer the consequences by yourself or to say no and then face, you know, like direct conflict and, and all this, you know, everything that comes with it. Um, yeah, so that was back then. And well, now, now, obviously, I think about this a lot different because mm -hmm. um, I was only out for two months. And um, I, I know other people who've been out for a lot longer and had more severe burnouts. So what I experienced was, I would say, like, a, um, yeah, I thought it was bad, but, you know, it wasn't as bad as, as others. And yet it was scary enough for me to be like, no, this is, you know, this is not going to happen again. Yeah, um, yeah I need to really take care of myself, stand up for myself um, and just face whatever the consequences might, might be, you know? Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for, for sharing your story. Um, I, I was in product weekend a few weeks ago and uh, this was one of the topics that uh, we it was questioned during one of the sessions uh, and like suddenly everybody had an opinion and wanted to know about this so from junior to senior so i felt it was uh, it's a very odd topic and uh, everybody feels it uh, in some way so it's always great to to have a personal story shared um with such a, a raw uh description as you as you did so thank you well, you're welcome i hope you know others can also um, or i hope it motivates others to or encourages others to also share um because i also remember back then as soon as i i started this talking about this to friends you know, suddenly everybody knew somebody who had a burnout. Like before, nobody knew anything. And it was like, you know, never, it was like the unicorn. Like everybody mm -hmm. talks about it. Nobody knows where it is or where it's hiding. The moment you say, look, I burned out. You have people like, yeah, me too, me too, me too. I know that person or oh, that person too. And all these stories, like they might have different reasons why people burn out. But it, it's always like very, very personal. 
and it's always different, right? But, um, or the reasons why it happens is always different. Um, but in the end, like if you talk to, if you talk to some, some of these folks, you all, they all tell you that they didn't see it coming, but everybody around them, you know, saw that you were sort of running against the brick wall. Mm. And either your peers, colleagues, friends, families didn't say anything, or even worse, they told you, but you chose to ignore them, right? And yes. um, yeah, so sometimes, you know, sometimes I also think some people just have to burn out. Like you, you, cannot, you cannot help someone who doesn't want to help themselves. If you say everything is okay, everything, you've got everything under control and you're just, you know, like running around like a headless chicken in the background and you do not see the difference between what is happening and what you're saying, it's very, very difficult to accept someone else's opinion about your situation because you will always find excuses to say, no, no, that's, you know, yeah, thanks for your concern, but everything is cool, you know. Was that your case? Oh yeah, 100%. <laughs> okay. Yeah, 100%. And the funny slash sad thing was that after, um, like after I sort of slowly started to come back, a friend of mine um, fell into the same situation. And that friend of mine was, like I was in constant contact with him during my um, sick leave. So I was telling him, you know, what was going on. And then he would tell me, oh, you know, that's exactly what's happening to me at work, right? So I'll be, I'll, I'll, I would try and convince him that, you know, to take all these warning signals seriously. And he would be telling me, you know, everything is cool. You know, it's my situation is different. Mm -hmm. I just need to push through a bit more. Um, yeah. And then a couple of, I think, weeks later uh, or months later, he also burned out, right? So, mm -hmm. and, yeah, and that friend of mine, yeah, now now um, that he's recovered, well, we sometimes sort of laugh about that situation because yeah, here's one person who just recovered telling the other person who's falling into burnout what to do and what not to do, what to, how to take care of themselves, and nothing sort of changed, right? So yeah, it's uh, I guess whoever solves this problem will be. Um, yeah, that person will be very appreciated if uh, there's a way to sort of communicate to others in a way that they actually understand and they can, you know, act upon. Well, you you've started doing that job uh, because you <laughs> you started after your DC experience. You interviewed fifty PMs, correct? Uh, and you collect uh, some data about stress management and how PMs uh, deal with it. And you create the concept of the bulletproof soul. Uh, what is this about? Well, bulletproof soul is about... Um... It's about finding a way to to manage stress without, you know, while still keeping like a, a sane mind and body, right? So I think whatever you do as, as a product person or as a human being, you, you always have to, you know, like you can't, you can't just ignore who you are and, 
um, you know, like all your traits. So you, you need to keep that, right? That, for me, that's like the soul part. But then at the same time, you can't expose every part of yourself to every single situation because in some, in some situations, you need to protect yourself. In other situations, you need to be, um, you know, firm or you need to maybe slightly act against your natural tendencies. So that's like where the bulletproof comes in. So you need, you need both, right? You need to know who you are. You need to know your soul, but then you also need to have like tools and techniques to protect yourself and to um, yeah, manage um, uh, stress. So it's, it's, a, yeah, it's a way for product leaders to manage stress based on research that have been done by many smart people like way before me. So it's, it's sort of packaging some of the things I also learned during therapy in a way that hopefully people can, can understand um, and, and start using in their daily lives. Perfect. And uh, where can people access that information? Um, so people can access it on my homepage. So that is calmer.works, so C-A-L-M-R.W-O-R-K-S slash Bulletproof Soul. And there's lots of information uh, there. There's canvases you can use to assess your situation, uh, identify like leading indicators of stress. Um, and yeah, hopefully at least have some very tangible tools to deal with the situation and not feel helpless or um yeah not feel helpless yes yes essential to to I, I think it's good that people um are get getting more aware about this topic before uh burning out special especially junior people uh because this will hopefully help us realize what might be coming if we follow certain paths. So uh, I think it's great that this, this is a, a topic that is being more and more discussed. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, what you said is super important. So this, this concept of Bulletproof Soul or you know, the, the techniques um, that I share there, um, this is all for prevention, right? Once you've burned out, like none of that will work. To be honest, like if you're if you're past a certain point, no amount of self-care is going to help you, like no amount of breathing techniques is going to help you. But once you're past that point, you're past that point and you need professional help, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this is really about understanding like your, your stressors and how you react to those different stressors and um, finding ways to uh, like counteract some of these things and also having a way to check in with yourself on a regular basis so that you can identify, you know, when you're sort of um, moving to a, moving into a wrong direction. It's almost like, you know, as PMs, we've got leading indicators and lagging indicators. So those are leading indicators for success, right? Yes. Or for not success, depending on how, how, you, <laughs> how you look at it. That's an excellent way to put it. Uh, and I think our audience will uh, like to hear these words that are familiar to, to our way we work. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's go to your current position, uh, Head of Product at Todoist. Um, so can you please explain us what is Todoist and how it is different from other task management apps? 
Yeah, of course. Um, so the company is called actually called Doist, just Doist. So I'm head of product at Doist, and we have two products that we um, that we manage. One is Todoist, the, the task manager, and then another product is Twist, which is a Teams communication application uh, specifically designed for asynchronous and remote teams. Um, yeah, so Todoist is a task manager. And um, as you said, there are like lots of task managers out there. I think the, the, the thing that differentiates us are we're like very simple to use. And at the same time, there's lots of power under the hood. So we've seen people use it for things like shopping lists, you know, very, very simple tasks that they manage to running um, small teams and small businesses. Right. So uh, with that power and with that simplicity, I think the second thing that differentiates us from others is that it's so flexible that it adapts to whatever use case that you might have. And it also unifies like all the different parts of your life. So people use it to manage, say, their home life, their personal life, their families, your vacation projects. And at the same time, they manage uh, work tasks and it's all unified in one uh, application. And then it's also like the fastest way to get stuff out of your head and into any task manager. Um, mm -hmm. It's available on all major platforms and we've got tons of integration so that you can plug it into all sorts of different applications that you might use. So yeah, not just one USP, like a bunch of them. Okay, great. You also, you also have this tool for uh, Teams uh, communication, specialized in asynchronous uh, communication. And I imagine that you also use this uh, within your team, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, and I think asynchronous communication and the complete 100% remote work is still uh, confusing for some people. Uh, how does that work? So how do you apply asynchronous communication in your workplace? And how do you make sure that uh, decisions are being made, communication is flowing and uh, work gets done? Oh, so many great questions. Um, well, I think the first thing to know is that Doist is a remote and async first company uh, and has always been like that since the um, inception many, many years ago. Um, so we're not like maybe most other companies that switch from synchronous and co-located to asynchronous and remote. So that means everybody who gets hired um, also wants to work like that. Right? So I think that's very important to know because it makes communication, decision-making, collaboration a lot easier if the 100 people that work for Doist actually know that you know, they, they are seeking out to work that way. Um, so, yeah, just just a, like a caveat before I start to explain how we work. Um, so, yeah, for us, I think one of the biggest differences to maybe on-site um, and co-located is everything is written first, whether it's through our uh, through Twist or Async uh, communications platform or to, through any sort of docs. It's a very written first culture. And um, that I think has a lot of advantages, but also a few disadvantages. I think on the advantages side, you have a lot more time to actually think uh, things through. 
And you also give more people the opportunity to absorb the, the information on their time and then also respond in a thoughtful manner. And um, unlike maybe in synchronous meetings, you know, where you, you always have people who, who talk the most, it's like, it's always the same two people who talk the most in every single meeting. Um, and you don't have so many uh, diverse thoughts and diverse voices, that sort of evens the playing field if you're written first and async first. I think that's like the biggest, I would say like the biggest uh, plus. And then on the downside, because you did mention decision uh, making, um, it, does, it does give you a slight hit in terms of speed. Uh, because in our case, we are, we are 100 people across like all the different time zones, right? We've got people everywhere on, on, on the planet. Um, so things might take a little longer than if you're all in one meeting and trying to talk uh, things through. Right. So the pacing is a bit different, um, but then you sort of you sort of make up for it by being a bit more. Um, I don't know whether it's deliberate, but you know you prepare the stuff that you want to say a bit more than just sending over a quick uh, direct message and then you know playing this ping pong game where you go back and forth 10 million times until you've come to a conclusion. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and then uh, I think one, one aspect that is also very uh, unique at Duis is we have this culture of the uh, DRI. So the um, directly responsible individual or at Duis, we call it DRD, directly responsible Duister, which is like all the big topics have one person who is in charge. So that you know, you might collect different opinions, different points of views, but you still have one person who will then decide and make things happen. So I think that combination ensures that um, yeah, work gets done. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's it's like the PM of the the topics, but I imagine you yes. might divide it more broadly and not only uh, to between PMs. Yes, exactly. It's the PM of the topic, I like that. <laughs> yeah, that described as well. But do you you also have meetings, right? Or do you choose to do only written message? No, no, we do have meetings. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It, it's just that we, it's not a meeting first culture. Right. So our default is written. Um, and if that doesn't work, then obviously we'll, we'll move into synchronous um, ways of collaborating, even for, for things like workshops. So we also do like sync workshops. Um, but yeah, we're constantly trying to push the boundaries of async. Like, how do we do a design sprint totally async? You know, how does that work? <laughs> Those are always fun experiments. Right, right. And that uh, you can also then apply those experiment results to, to your own product. That you are building yeah absolutely i think that that's a that's a very unique view that we have because we dog food all our products we use to do is to build to do is we use twist um, to build to do is and to build uh, twist um and yeah because we're such a, we're in such a unique setting we also try and um, apply some of the things that have worked for us and try and embed that into into our products perfect you you said that you have um, multiple people that are in multiple time zones, uh, and you keep this uh, written first culture. So my question is, 
how do you build uh, human connections in an asynchronous work environment? So you, you referred that uh, people need to be, first of all, to be willing and interested in working in such a culture. So I imagine that is essential to have a good uh, work environment, that everyone is there and agrees with the culture, but uh, still there is this uh, like uh, obstacle of uh, building human connections, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's there's a lot of things that um, we do at Doist and. Um, like the, the DRD for all these things is our head of remote, right? So um, he, he thinks about everything from collaborating to connecting with each other beyond just uh, screens and, um, yeah, and just like um, async and written first. And we've got, we've got a couple of things that we do. So for one, there are meetups that we organize throughout the year. So there's, um, one meetup we call Doist Connect, which is once a year where everybody flies in or travels into one particular space for yeah, six to seven days. And then, you know, we spend time with each other and um, partially working, but more, more importantly, just getting to know each other, hanging out and um, yeah, just having fun. Mm -hmm. so that's once a year. And then every team, so for instance, the, the, the product management team or the design team or the engineering team. Uh, so every team has once a year the possibility to also meet up. Those are like mini retreats where again, everybody comes together in a specific location and then you do exactly the same thing, but just within your own team, right? Um, so those are, those are two, I would say essential ways that we keep the, the human connection. Um, and yeah, they're embedded into the culture and everybody just you know, looks forward to, to actually spending time with each other. Um, and then there's also like some, some online things that we do. There's lots of you know, like games and, and yeah, all sorts of um, ways doers can express themselves and show other sides um, than just the professional sides. Um, we've got like online cooking classes where everybody connects at the same time. And then one person walks everyone through, you know, preparing a certain dish. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard of it. Yeah, that, that actually, like I, I took part in one of those. Um, and there's also like, we also had like a fitness class where one doister, um, um, yeah, like walked us through like a high intensity training, for like 45 minutes, everybody's in front of their laptop, just, just doing the exercises and, and being online together at the same time. So these things also help, but I would say the big ones are actually meeting in person. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and as you said, I think the, the most crucial thing is the people and having people that that cherish like seeing each other, but also cherish their time alone. And um, I've just noticed that it's, it's probably like people probably need a lot less like, you know, face-to-face -face time uh, than maybe we think, especially in a work, work setting, if everything else 
you know, it's like the culture is right and people self-select into that way of working and that culture, then everything else um, probably needs to be more deliberate. So rather than seeing each other every single week, you see each other once a year or twice a year, but then it's an event, right? And people can mm -hmm. go there and just enjoy themselves and take home memories. And then that's going to last like for another six months until you meet your team again. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how we do it. Yeah. Yeah, I I understand that uh, way of working, and uh, yeah, I already work in something similar. Um, what I felt was that uh, for me, especially in the beginning of my career, uh, it made more sense to try to be more close closer to people, just because, uh, like, I knew no one. Uh, I knew no one in my field and also in other departments uh, and my network was um, non-existent. So I felt that need of uh, going to the office and try to connect with people and understand them and to talk with them and see their faces to, to start building that network. But for someone that uh, uh, is more senior, uh, I think uh, it might be a different case. Yeah, I agree. It, it definitely is different also from the role. Right? So I joined the company as a head of product. Um, so in one, one of the first things that I did was I just connected with, I think like 20 to 30 people, like had you know, synchronous calls just to meet people and understand who they were and introduce myself uh, and also get, get a feel for the company and how product was being done. And yeah, as a head of product, I think it's easier to, I would say, like request these kinds of meetings. Whereas if I were maybe a junior PM, um, I might still get those meetings, but maybe I wouldn't feel like it's my place to, you know, reach out to 30 people and, and ask for them to, yeah, to, to talk uh, with me. But I did feel like that was, that was a very good tool. So yeah, anyone out there joining a remote company in some sort of leadership position, I would definitely say, you know, do a listening tour, connect to uh, people. And then very important at the end of every meeting, like ask that person who else you need to talk to, right? because mm -hmm. that then gives you, um, uh, that fills great. up your backlog. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Great. Okay. So final thoughts. Uh, we are reaching the end of our conversation um, and you are going to be present in the Prioritize conference in October. 2023. So why should people join us uh, in October? Well, um, if you've never been to Lisbon, you absolutely, absolutely have to come. Um, it's, a, it's a great city. Um, and particularly for the uh, Bulletproof Soul session, I would say, you know, join the session if you either want to learn about stress management or you're curious about stress management. So you're not yet in that situation, but you're maybe working in, a, in an environment where your colleagues are getting sick and you're sort of wondering, oh, you know, how do I ensure that I do not fall into that trap? Um, and also just join the session if you, you know, just want to talk to other people who are interested in these kinds of things, because most of the time I realize or I see that after the talks, people open up a bit and have better conversations with each other. Um, yeah. So if you want to do yourself 
uh, some good and um, you know try and try and achieve a bulletproof soul, then by <laughs> all means join join the session and also come and say hi. Like I'm also interested in in connecting with other people and exchanging um, tools, techniques, approaches. So I'm also I'm also there to learn from others. Great. Well, that was it. Thank you, Dominique. All right. Thank you very much for having me.